Hey, good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good, good. I just want to take uh, a couple of minutes really quick and just brag on uh, Spencer, his committee, his team, and the 60-something volunteers that made VBS happen this last week. They did an incredible job. Many of them were here last Sunday for hours after service when we all went home and went to eat lunch making the building look like this, and it was even more than this. Some of it's been tamed down for this weekend, uh, but they, they labored last Sunday. Many of them also served all four nights from like 5 o'clock to like 8.30, four nights in a row, and it was fun. But let me tell you, it was also demanding physically on these volunteers, but they served with joy in their hearts, believing in what we were doing and having these 70, 80 kids in the building full of energy, having a blast, laughing, making messes, getting uh, whipped cream in my eyeball. Uh, it was worth every bit of it, and it was phenomenal. And I just want to uh, thank everyone who is involved and give glory to God for the heart of service uh, for these families and for these kids in our church family. Can we give them a big thank you? As pastor, my heart was and is so full, and I can't wait till next year, and I can't wait to see it happen again next year. It was amazing. And some of the workers who might still be recovering energy from it might be thinking, whoa, let's pause on the next year talk. Um, you can see from the sermon title, Best Sermon Ever, I guess I was feeling pretty good about my sermon prep this week. Um, no, that's a joke. <laughs> Uh, it's sad to me that some of you didn't recognize that was a joke. I wouldn't call my sermon the best sermon ever. The reason that this week's title is the best sermon ever is because in our reading plan this last week, we were in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the sermon that Jesus delivered in the early chapters of the book of Matthew. Now, before we get into that, I want to ask really quick, have any of you ever thought that you were really, really good at something? or that you really knew something really well until you saw someone else that was really actually much better than you or actually knew something much more than you. And in seeing them, you recognize, oh, maybe I'm not as awesome at XYZ as I thought I was. Ever been there before? Let me tell you a little story. As they said uh, earlier, tomorrow Katie and I will celebrate eight years of marriage. It's been wonderful. And I remember the night, August, I'm sorry, not August, April 19th of 2013, over by our cafe where I first met her. And uh, we met here in this church, moved here from Texas as a single guy. And I remember meeting her and talking to her, thinking, wow, she's pretty. I'd like to get to know her better. Hopefully she loves Jesus a whole lot. And she did, praise the Lord, because uh, it wouldn't have really worked out otherwise. But so I'm getting to know her. And I'm talking to her, and I'm like, so what do, you, what do you like? What are you about? And she was like, well, I love volleyball. And I was like, sweet, I love volleyball too. In fact, growing up in Arkansas, I used to play volleyball in a church league a whole lot. And so uh, I'm thinking, hey, here's an area I might be able to impress. <laughs> and uh, she invites me one Thursday night to sub for their team at the YMCA, and I'm thinking, oh, it's on. All right. I'm going to show her what good volleyball looks like. And, uh, yeah, so that night we, we played, and I got to the point, first time in the rotation, where I was at the front of the net, and front and middle. And then a serve came over the net, and in my desire to impress and be a good player, I jumped up and I blocked it. And I'm thinking I'm going to turn around to the like, yeah, high fives and all that kind of stuff. Instead, I turned around to like uh, some faces that told me something was wrong. And the ref blew the whistle and pointed at the other side saying the ball's going that way. And I was like, oh, I didn't think I got in the net. Didn't think I went under the net. Oh, one of my teammates must have messed up. It's all right. I'll, I'm going to be a good guy. Be like, ah, it's all right. We'll get the next one. And I turn around to the faces of everybody looking at me like, and I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, yeah, you, you can't block a serve. And I was like, yeah, you can. We did it all the time in Arkansas. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, no, uh, I don't know how 
y'all do it in Arkansas, but uh, you can't do that. That's against the rules. And I'm like, Wisconsinites in your weird quirks, okay. I won't block any more serves. And they're like, yeah, no, that's kind of the rules everywhere <laughs> in volleyball. And I'm like, oh, okay. And it only took a few more minutes of playing volleyball that night to recognize from watching Katie who played at Lakeland and is tied for second place. She texts me after last service. She's home with one of our daughters who's not feeling well. She watched last service and texts me that I got the stat wrong, so let me get it right, because I was more generous. She's tied for second place at Lakeland's history for kills in a match. She got 24 kills in a three-game match, and the people who had more than that did it in five games, so I think she's in first place. I'm not biased. <laughs> you were her setter. That's right, Brittany. All that to say, she's okay at volleyball. And by playing a few minutes with her and her brother who grew up in a volleyball family, their friends and family, all that, it took me about five minutes to go, oh man, I'm not that good at volleyball. And all of that is a funny story that, that to try and communicate the feeling of thinking things are a certain way and seeing yourself a certain way, then seeing someone else and hearing from someone else and learning, oh, I'm not necessarily as awesome as I think I am. Jesus shows up into the world that he created. Remember last week we talked from John about, it says in John chapter 1, that all things were created by him and there's not anything that exists that was, uh, that was not made through him. He enters into this world, puts on flesh. Jesus, God incarnate, meaning God in the flesh, comes to this world that is full of darkness, full of people in sin, people who for years and years, their entire life, and then for centuries and in generation after generation, had been living a certain way. Jesus comes in, even the people that think, I've got this. I'm pretty good. Even the people who are like, yeah, I'm pretty special in God's eyes. Jesus comes up and he starts teaching this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon ever. And to all of them, he says, hey, that's not really how you play ball. The way that you're doing this actually is not right. And in fact, if you really want your life to flow with the grain of the universe that that me and my father created, I'm going to teach you some things. And we find ourselves at the sermon, uh, I'm sorry, the Sermon on the Mount in an era where people were looking for a natural king to overthrow a natural oppressor. Jesus came in a way that made it hard for many people to see who he was. Do you remember in John where it says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him? He came in a way that made it difficult for them to recognize. Not only did he come in a way that was counterintuitive to what they were looking for, but his teachings, the things he spoke and said, were so extremely counterintuitive to the world and life as they knew it. Beginning in Matthew chapter 5 and then going on through Matthew chapter 7, we have the account of the Sermon on the Mount a sermon so great that I could actually take my time today to just read chapter 5, 6, and 7, just close the Bible and say, you just heard the best sermon ever, because that's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something similar, a little different. I am actually going to take the next 10 minutes, that's about how long it takes, to read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I tell you that so you can set your expectation. We're going to be reading for a minute. But for those of you who are like, man, we're really seriously about to read three chapters of the Bible in one setting? Yes. Because Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is authoritative. And the Holy Spirit of God works with the Word of God to transform the people of God. We believe in the Word of God. In case you want to know who Word of Grace is, one thing that I hope is abundantly clear out the gate is we plant our flag on the Word of God. We're going to be a Bible church. We teach the Bible. We study the Bible. We want to learn the Bible because the Bible teaches us who God is. And in a world where everyone wants to make up their own ideas about God, we want to go to the source, Scripture, to learn who God is, who we are, what we need to learn about this world, this life, and the implications of God's world upon us. As we listen to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, there's not a person listening 
who will have absolutely nothing from this passage confront them. No one here is going to hear the Sermon on the Mount and go, oh yeah, I know that. And if you do, if you're not confronted by something in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a good chance that you might find yourself among the company of the Pharisees who think, I know how to play volleyball. I don't need this. I've heard this before. I know the rules. Let the sermon confront you. It confronts me every time I read it. And likewise, there will not be a person who hears it who will also not also be challenged, encouraged, invited, and even by the love of God, wooed and drawn into a way of the kingdom of God that is countercultural to the ways of the kingdoms of men. And you're invited by this into life in Christ. So if you haven't taken the hint, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to encourage you, while we're reading, to pay, pay attention, focus, and listen to these words and try to imagine that Jesus himself is talking to you. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, or to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply or let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, the other to, or turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 5 is the longer of the three chapters. Going into chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive, have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They, they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light 
in you is darkness. How great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And now the shortest chapter 7. Judge not that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye. When there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. One day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell. And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, 
and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Do you feel that? The power of the divinely inspired word of God, spoken out of the mouth of God, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, challenging the cultural norms, the status quo, the way of life that everyone knew, the thought paradigms and patterns that everyone had. If you want to grow in your daily walk with the Lord, I have a challenge for you. I encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount every day for 10 days. Remember, it's only 10 minutes. That's 10 minutes. What in your life could you cut out 10 minutes of to make 10 minutes of room for the Sermon on the Mount? Do it for 30 days and watch the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and the Sermon on the Mount reorient the desires of your heart, your view and your perspective of this world, your habits, your, your priorities, the things that you think matter. Let the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great sermon, reorient your heart. Do it for 30 days and watch what happens. And if you do that, one thing further you can do, you'll already be halfway to the possible point of just memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. Are you kidding me, Pastor Stephen? You're asking me to memorize three chapters of the Bible? Let me remind you that the ancient Israelites used to memorize the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you think you can't memorize three chapters, it's because you haven't tried and you've doubted yourself, you haven't applied yourself. You can do it. You know how I know? Because you can sit there and recite to me statistics about Packer football games from the 70s. And you can recite your favorite song after your favorite song after your favorite song. You have in your mind more song lyrics than would fit in the three chapters. You can do it. The question is, do you see it as valuable enough? And when you do, watch the Holy Spirit of God work through the Word of God to transform the people of God. If you want to step back from the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon packed full of powerful truth after powerful truth after powerful truth, and you want to try and summarize it all, what's the main takeaway of this one sermon? What is it about? It is simply, I would say this, the ways of God's kingdom are contrary to the ways of men. The ways of God's kingdom are contrary to the ways of men. The heartbeat, that's the heartbeat of the entire thing. Jesus saying, listen, I know you've heard this, but I say this. Listen, listen, I know you're living in a world full of darkness and the norms are to live in darkness like everyone else, but I say, take your light, get up on a hill and shine into the glory of God. Listen, I know you all make promises. It's normal to say, I pinky promise or I swear, or, I promise I'm gonna do it. Listen, let's stop that. Let's let our yes be yes, our no be no. Let's live in integrity to where that's good enough. When we say yes or no, people believe it. Listen, I know everyone in the world tells you and even the own inclinations of your heart tell you that if someone punches you, punch back. But I say if they punch you, go ahead and turn the other cheek to them. Don't retaliate. Listen, I know it's only natural for you to hate your enemies. But I'm inviting you into a kingdom in a way that is not natural, it's supernatural. What would it look like for you to actually love your enemies? What would it look like for you to actually pray for those who persecute you and cause hardship in your life? Listen, I know when you give and do good things, you like for it to be seen because it feels good to get the pat on the back. But what if you did those things in secret where other people couldn't know and only your father who sees what you do in secret knows? And what if we lived for his praise rather than the praise of men? Remember all those times where Jesus said, those people get their reward. It is the good job. That's what they get. When your reward is before the father in heaven, that reward is a lot greater than a pat on the back. Notice how Jesus begins his sermon 
with what's famously being called the Beatitudes. It comes from the Latin word beatus, meaning blessed or happy. This list that just right out the gate is like, hey, everything that you think makes someone happy or blessed, nope, let's flip that on its head. In fact, very first, blessed are the poor in spirit. No one hears poor anything and thinks that person's blessed. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the people who think they are spiritually sufficient, not the people who think they've got it all together, but the people who spiritually feel and recognize and acknowledge, I am needy. In the book of Revelation, one of the condemnations that's lobbed against one of the churches is you think you're rich. You think you have sight and you think you're helping others, but what you don't know is that you are blind and you are poor and you are naked. Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, the people who recognize I am needy for the intervention of the ever-benevolent, gracious God. And my only hope is if he intervenes in my life. Blessed are those who mourn. Have you ever looked at someone mourning and gone, I'm jealous? No, this is countercultural. We don't look at someone weeping and mourning and, and think, They're blessed. In fact, we usually feel bad for them. Pray for them. Hope they're okay. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. See, we live in a world and a society that has prioritized comfortability. We don't want to know the comfort of the Lord because we would rather know the comfort of, of our culture. We would rather be comfortable than comforted. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn because you will know what it feels like to be comforted. That you might think those comforts in your life that you've worked hard to accumulate and acquire and place in your life, I get it. Feeling comfortable is, feels good. But what you can rob yourself of if you pad your life to the extent that you never know discomfort, you never know inconvenience, you never know danger, you never know pain, you don't know the wonderful power of the grace of God, of the comfort that comes through the Holy Spirit in your morning. And you think that couch is comfortable, you think that luxury is comfortable, it is, but it's not greater than the comfort that comes through the Lord. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's talking to the church in Corinth about the comfort that he received from God. In fact, I'll just really quickly go there. He says uh, in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The Apostle Paul showing that this blessedness of the comfort that comes from God has trickled down from Jesus to the Apostles but we would rather choose comfort of things than comfort from the Lord. He goes on, blessed are the meek. What does that even mean? Like, when's the last time you heard meek used in a sentence? Oh, man, I just love working with John. He's so meek. Oh, man, that's my favorite pro athlete. That dude is meek. Oh, yeah, I voted for him because he's meek. <laughs> yeah, right. What does meek even mean? It implies little gentle, quiet. In fact, if you went to the dictionary, it says humbly patient or quiet in nature as under provocation from others. Overly submissive or compliant, tame. Now, how many of us like to go, yeah, I want to be known as overly submissive and compliant? No. We don't like that idea. We don't like that thought. It's countercultural. But Jesus says, actually, that person is blessed. That person is blessed. Is it possibly because they are trusting God with the outcomes of their life and not their own ability, their own power, their own strength, their own intellect? Blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The people who can look around and sense that things are not right in this world, in this situation, in the hearts of men, maybe even possibly in their own hearts that would hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're blessed. Why? Because they'll be satisfied. Jesus never looks at the heart of someone who's hungering for righteousness and goes, nah, not you. No, when you hunger for it, he says you will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, those who don't give other people what they had coming. Aren't you thankful that God has not looked at us and said, yeah, you're going to get what you had coming. He gives us opportunities to respond to his grace and mercy to repent and receive forgiveness. He says those who are merciful, merciful will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who not only have pure actions or do the right things, but have right motives. And in this rabbinic Judaism culture that he's talking to, that overemphasized external ritual purity, Jesus teaches that it's actually purity of the heart that God cares about. He's saying it's not all about the making sure you washed your hands the right amount of times, the right ways with the right water. It's about what is going on in your heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who seek out reconciliation between others. And especially those who seek out reconciliation of others with God. Like Paul told the Corinthians when he said, we make our plea, be reconciled to God, come back to God. A.K.A. make peace with God. If you're out of his if you're out of righteousness, if you are living in sin. Finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who resolve in their heart, hey, I'm going to stay faithful to God no matter what the culture says or what my coworkers say or what my friends may say or what my beloved family might say. I'm going to stay faithful to the Lord. How do you do that? It is by living with eternity in mind, recognizing we will stand before God one day and so we should stand for him today. I'm going to say that one more time. We will stand before God one day, all of us. So let's stand for God today. If these beatitudes aren't enough for Jesus to help them see that this kingdom has different values than the kingdoms of men, and if it wasn't enough to, to make them look internally at their hearts, another way that Jesus challenges them is through these but I say statements. Remember, he said, you've heard it said from those of old, don't murder. Pretty good idea, right? We like that rule. Easy standard that we can go, yeah, good idea. He says, but I say, if you are even angry at your brother, you're liable to judgment and hellfire. That ought to make all of us who sit there and look at murderers and go, how evil. And then he says that should make us go, oh, I'm not so, so good at that. I've been angry in my heart before at others. He says, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Again, pretty good standard, pretty good law, pretty good rule. He says, but I say, if you even look with lust in your heart, you've committed the very act of adultery in your heart. And if you're like me and you grew up your whole life saving yourself for marriage, which I would endorse and encourage, and, and saving yourself for the night that you got married, but you're sitting here wearing your, batch, your patch on your arm going, yeah, I'm a virgin. <laughs> I'm thankful that I'm not like all of you, even though secretly I'm addicted to lust in ways that I won't discuss because I know there's some kids present. Sitting here like a Pharisee going, ah, I'm thankful I've never done that act. I'm thankful I've never crossed that line. I've never committed adultery. When in my heart, I had done more, many more times. To us, these passages make all of us go, oh, I don't got that. I'm, I need help. And in fact, if all of these weren't enough, him saying, you've heard it say, but I say, upping the ante every time, he finishes off that section in chapter 5 by saying this in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect 
as your heavenly father is perfect. It's like he's saying, in case you're not getting what I'm saying, be perfect. To which, if you haven't heard those other you've said, but I say things and gone, oh, yikes, I'm in trouble. When he says, in other words, be perfect, that ought to finally be the point where you go, whoa. Because we all know our own hearts. We all know our own struggles. We all know our own sins. See, one of the other purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to confront us. Another purpose on the Sermon on the Mount is to once more confront you with your need for a Savior. In case you think this is just a, a moral teaching to teach you how to be good, Jesus says these things that hopefully make you go, oh, oh, snap, I'm actually not good. I'm in trouble because I am not perfect. And I have let my eyes wander and I have let my mind wander and I have been angry. Jesus continues this countercultural invitation to introspection and evaluation by saying, hey, when you do good things, stop doing them before everyone else. There's some times where it's before other people. Like when we went into Sheboygan and cut, cut up trees to clean up after that storm came through, you can't really cut up trees in secret. <laughs> Chainsaws are loud and trees are big. And so that was an opportunity to do good works before men, let that light shine on the hill that they may see those good works and not think, wow, those are great people. Every time those people came out, oh, you guys are so wonderful. I kept on saying, we're just trying to serve the Lord and be a blessing in the community. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But as often as you can, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, whatever good things you do, try not to let the left hand know what the right hand is doing, a.k.a. don't do it in front of everyone else. In fact, try as hard as you can to do it in secret. Think about the same way that my, God, my daughters are like, Daddy, watch. Daddy, watch. They want to know that I see them do these little things. Man, why can't we let the, the child's heart be in us for the father instead of saying, hey, guys, look how much money I'm giving in the offering. What if we're like, Daddy, watch. Live for the eyes of the father. Not for the praise of men, the praise of God. Don't disfigure your face when you're fasting. Take your shower, do your hair, put on your nice clothes, wear your Jordans, whatever, and pick up your spirit. Don't go around, oh, I'm so hungry. That cheeseburger looks really good. <laughs> no. Don't live for the eyes of men, but for the eyes of God. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He goes on after talking about this. One of those things he said was prayer. Don't pray like these people do. In fact, pray this way. And he goes into the ever-famous, ever-powerful Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into to temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have a theological melting pot of people from all sorts of backgrounds in our, churches, in our church, and I'm so thankful for that. And so often when we have people come to our church from a liturgical background, they always want to know, why don't we do the Lord's Prayer at Word of Grace? Why don't we say the Lord's Prayer? Like, aren't you supposed to do that? Listen, recite the Lord's Prayer every day if you want to. That's a great idea. That's a very good thing. But I want to point out that Jesus wasn't teaching his disciples what to pray, rather how to pray. He didn't say, when you pray, say this. He said, when you pray, pray this way. He wasn't trying to just give his disciples a prayer that they could stamp on their day once, once a day or stamp in their Sunday service. He was saying, when you're praying, pray this way. First, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, started off by recognizing you're talking to the holy God of the universe. There is a posture you should have in light of that. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, let me pray that your will would be done in my life, in this world. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah, absolutely. Pray that God would meet your needs. Pray for whatever's on your heart. Forgive our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Yeah, absolutely. Confess your sin and ask God to forgive you for it as long as you're also forgiving people who have sinned against you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Yeah, let's pray that God would deliver us from evil. Again, the Lord's Prayer is not about what to pray, but about how to pray. 
Jesus shifts from issue to issue, running through all these things, trying to challenge. Finally, he gets to one of the core issues of people's hearts. We're going to wrap up here in just a couple minutes, but he gets to the core issue of people's hearts. He says, you can't serve two masters. You can't love God and money. You can't. He didn't say if you try really hard and if you figure out the formula, you can. He says, you can't serve God and money. But he knows that people have needs. He knows that people have concerns. And he says, and you're sitting here worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Have you seen sparrows? God feeds them. Have you seen flowers? God made them beautiful. You're way more valuable to the Father than birds and flowers. And since that's true, and because your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things, here it is, the core of the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added. Do you think that Jesus Christ in his goodness and perfection is going to see you putting God first in your life and go, eh, I may not let them have what they need. No. He's good. He loves you. And he knows what you need. The obstacle is sometimes we think he's not faithful because we mix the line between needs and wants, especially in America. Your heavenly father knows what you need. And if you are putting him first in your life, He's not going to let you miss out on anything that you need. Put him first. All of this, these people might be thinking, man, this way of Jesus sounds kind of hard. And to that, Jesus says, you know what? There's two gates. One is wide and one is narrow. This narrow gate, that way is hard. And there are few who will find it. And those who do, that, that path, that gate leads to life. There's a wide gate that's easy. And many will find it. And they will find destruction. Listen, the way of Jesus is hard. Anyone who has told you otherwise is trying to sell you something or to get you to just give to their ministry and bless the, you know, if you sell $2,022 to my ministry right now, God's going to bless you with 2000 you know, whatever. Trying to sell you a bill, a deed of goods under the name of Christianity, lies, wolves, and sheep's clothing. This candy-coated, best life now, no inconvenience, no discomfort, no danger, no hardship, no suffering that you have to rip out a bunch of pages of the Bible to pretend it's not true or is, yeah, to convince yourself that this is not the way of the Lord being hard. Remember in John 16, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome this world. Listen. Anyone who tells you, follow Jesus, and it's all going to be roses, rainbows, and Skittles, they're lying to you. Following Jesus is hard. He said, count the cost. He said, the Son of Man does not have a pillow to even lay his head on. Are you sure you want to follow me? It's hard, but this narrow and hard path leads to life everlasting. And following Jesus on this path, placing your faith in him, gives you a joy that is deeper than superficial, shallow, circumstantial, up and down happiness. It is hard, but it's worth it. And anybody who has a single gray hair on their head could tell you the best things in life, the most meaningful things in life, the right things in life are almost always hard. And God has put us in this world teaching us delayed gratification, living in a way where we are placing all of our hope in eternity. The path is narrow. The way is hard. And few will find it. He goes on to say there's false teachers who are going to tell you otherwise. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. You'll know them by their fruit, their life, the way they live. Friend, hear me. Hear me this morning. There is no worse thing in all your existence than you could hear. Worse than hearing, you're fired. 
Worse than hearing you're under arrest. Worse than hearing you've got cancer. Worse than hearing I want a divorce. Worse than hearing there's been a car accident. Worse than anything you could hear would be the words, depart from me, I never knew you, out of the mouth of Jesus. There will never be more painful words upon your ears. Jesus is inviting us to know him, to follow him, to sign up for this narrow path and recognize it's way different than the rest of the way that the world lives. And finally, Jesus builds, ties the bow on all of this by saying, hey, you're wise if you hear my words and do them. The storms of life will come and your house will stand on the rock of my word. And if you hear these words of mine and don't do them, your house will fall and great will be that fall. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this sermon that is greater than any sermon that has ever been preached. God, I ask by your Holy Spirit today that you would be at work in the hearts of everyone present, everyone listening, everyone watching online, that your sermon would confront us, evaluate all of us, let us look in the mirror. God, I ask that you would help us be honest with ourselves. Let us confess any sin that might between us and, and you. Lord, if there's anyone who has never come to true saving faith and repentance, I ask that you would bring them to that today. That all of us have been confronted woefully by how inadequate we are in our righteousness. All of us have sinned and fallen short. And so God, I ask by your grace that you would open eyes today to see the truth, to grant genuine repentance, that people would recognize their need for Jesus. And if there's any who have been straying and wandering, that they would come back to the path and not be seduced by the ease, the comfort, the convenience of the ways of the world, but that we would find deep, eternal joy in following our master, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.